Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Now, I want to wrap up 2 Corinthians today. Uh, and like I said, there's an opportunity to tie it in with what we heard from Greta this morning. Greta and the girls, thank you so much for sharing. And before we get there, before we dive into 2 Corinthians, I want to encourage you, urge you to continue to speak, to confess, to pray fervently for Jenny Good, for Todd Duckwitz. Todd is, Mike already pointed it out. I did not miss a Sunday. Think about that the next time you stayed up a little bit too late on Saturday night and decide you're a little too tired for church. Uh, Man, it's good to see you here. I went in and I was there the day he had surgery and... uh, Uh, I got to admit, a person coming out of open heart heart surgery looks a little peaked. Uh, And uh, then I saw him the next day. He was sitting up, looked a lot better. And then I missed a day. Pastor Mike went in. And then I went in the next day. And it was like, this is a new man. I'm amazed, just amazed at uh, the recuperation that's taken place. And, uh, you know, thankful for the doctors, thankful for your family and everything else. But all glory to God. Amen bringing you through this, but uh, it's a still quite a recovery that still has to take place. That's, that's pretty major, uh, but uh, a lot of recovery doesn't necessarily have to mean a long recovery, does it? Let's just continue to speak supernatural health and strength. As you heard uh, in the email, uh, Jenny had a point where she, could, uh, she cut back on her meds uh, just, uh, and, and it was really quite a thing. She was very excited when she texted me about that, but you know, the biggest mistake we could make as a church family, as a church body, is to say, all right, things are moving in the right direction. We can relax now. No, man, when the tide of battle starts to turn, that's when you press the attack, right? You keep on going through. Do you remember uh, Ai? After the battle of Jericho, when the, when the Israelites move into the land of promise, and they take Jericho, and they're there. They're finally there after all these hundreds of years, and after 40 years of wandering, they're finally in the land that God had promised them, and then they move to take the next town, and they are supposed to destroy everything, Right? And, uh, and they think, well, you know, we'll just, we'll just send a few guys in there. God's on our side. We don't need to do much. But they had, they had uh, held on to one thing. There was something that didn't get destroyed. Achan had kept something back. And, uh, and they lose this next battle. And it's, the idea is the things that are going to hold us back, the things that, uh, and this is, there's a parallel here, obviously, you know, sickness, disease, and struggles like that are not sin. But once we start to move in and give God this territory, we can't stop until he has it all. You know, the, uh, the, during the Feast of Unleavened, Unleavened Bread, the, the Israelites are not to have any, anything with yeast in it, anything with, with leaven in it. And so they go through the ceremony, even though this isn't part of the commandment, they go through, even today, they go through this ritual of looking under every cupboard, looking in every corner uh, of every drawer, looking for just the slightest crumb of yeast to make sure it's out of there so that they aren't tempted to do the wrong thing. Let's just get rid of everything. And so, man, when we start to feel better, and this isn't just about Jenny and Todd and your confession and prayers for them. This is about you. If you're fighting something, sickness in your body, another, a financial need, relationship, once you start to see things go your way, when you see God start to move, don't take your foot off the gas. Continue to speak to that. Speak God's word over that thing. This isn't just about positive confession. This is about biblical confession. 
our words continue to have power, right? So anyway, there's that. Uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, I believe, finish up Second Corinthians today. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the first part of chapter 12, and this is where we talked about Paul's thorn. Once again, get that message. It is so important that you understand what Paul is talking about and what he's not talking about. I gave you an example of uh, sort of what I thought was more or less a caricature of what people believe about chapter 12. Uh, But um, I looked at it in the Message Bible today, and I want to read you just a little part of it. Here's what it says from the Message and don't get me wrong, I like the Message Bible. I have been blessed by it. I've come across some difficult, some, some difficultly worded passage, maybe even particularly in the Old Testament, and uh, see how it's rendered in the Message. And it's one man's translation. It's Eugene Peterson. Thank God for him. I believe God used him. Uh, but sometimes it's just wrong. And uh, here's what the Message says in, uh, verse, uh, in chapter 12, beginning verse 7. It says, Because of the extravagance of those revelations... And so I wouldn't get a big head. I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. That is not what Paul wrote. And uh, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but that is not what happened. This, I mean, God gave me a handicap to keep me in touch with my limitations. No, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. So anyway, and it wasn't, I believe, I think we demonstrated it wasn't a physical handicap. It was a spiritual attack. But anyway, get get that message from a couple of weeks ago. And then we come to the closing verses of chapter 12 and and the final chapter 13. But he starts this way. Let's look in chapter 12 beginning in verse 11. Read a few verses here. He says, I become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. What he's saying here, he said, look, I wasn't going to go this route. He just... He, uh, he'd spent, uh, if you remember, before the thorn in the flesh that he was talking about, he was criticizing the Corinthians for turning their back on him. He's the one who founded their church. He lived with them for a year and a half, and he worked the whole time he was there, so he didn't even have to take a salary from them, and uh, did bent over backwards not to be a burden to him. And then in his wake come these other so-called apostles who are very stern and harsh, and they lord it over them. They lord their, their uh, self-proclaimed authority over the Corinthians, and in order to get a foot in the door, they lift themselves up, and they put Paul down, and the Corinthians respond to this. And Paul's like, what? Is this the way I needed to be to win your loyalty, to come in and just and beat you with a stick? And you're accusing me of being too nice. And the only thing I want to criti- really want to criticize you uh, about is your sin. You need to get some things. You know, they were very, a very carnal congregation. Uh, and he says, they come in and ta- bragging about their apostleship. He says, now you forced me to brag. He tells them about this, this uh, experience that he had, all the... the, the uh, attacks, this supernatural level of attacks, the shipwrecks and the beatings and all this other stuff. 
He said, I, w- I wasn't going to go this route, but since you boasted or you echoed the boasting of these other self-styled apostles, I felt compelled to offer defense by way of uh, defending my true uh, apostleship. And look what he brags about. He says, look what, notice what I bragged about. I, I bragged about perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And you guys were moved by the arrogance and abuse of these others. The main difference between me and them, he says, is the fact that I wasn't a burden to you. They came in and took your money, and I didn't. Uh, Hayford points out in his commentary, uh, in this Spirit-Filled Life Bible anyway, that there was apparently an accusation brewing there in Corinth, at least, that uh, you know, Paul, he, he was there again. He was there for a long time, worked closely with the church in Corinth, and he left. And then he sent in... Uh, people like Titus afterwards to, to uh, collect this offering, he tell, to prepare them for this offering. He says when he comes, he wants to collect this offering, take it to Jer- for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And apparently there was an accusation that Paul was collecting this money and keeping it. And Paul tells him, you, you should know better. You know me. I could have exercised my apostolic authority while I was there. I could have insisted that you pay me, and I didn't. And the guys I sent to you were guys that you know. You know their character. He refers to Titus and our other brother. He doesn't name this other brother, but apparently it was somebody whose character was uh, beyond reproach. (sighs) People that they trusted, and and he's he's hurt by these accusations. And then says this in... uh, beginning in verse 19. We're still in chapter 12. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? But we speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you as I wish, and that I shall not be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Now this should sound a little bit familiar to you, and we're going to look at some, uh, uh, I guess, parallel passages. You can turn with me or just listen as I read them. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Galatians chapter 5. That's going to be our next book, and I'm excited about this. Uh, Beginning in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, uh, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. And finally, for now, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, beginning in uh, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. So these are all similar passages where Paul is talking about the deeds of the flesh, uh, evidences, manifestations of evil, and he tells them, put these things to death. They should not be things that characterize believers. We're going to talk a lot about that in Galatians, but here's the thing I want you to see today. There's There's a lot that needs to be said, but we're going to save it for Galatians because of the way Paul tackles it there. We have to remember, we put a lot of emphasis, and rightly so, on the fact that it is Christ alone. It is his finished work that saves us. All right? That flesh shall be justified. No flesh shall be justified by the works of the law. We can't do it. So it's not a matter. What we do know doctrinally is that Paul's not saying, uh, okay, you're unsaved. In order to be saved, you have to stop doing all these things. That's not what he's saying. We know that, right? It's the blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ that saves us. Our right standing with God is based solely on the fact that we are in Christ and he is perfect. We've got that, right? Do we have that? All right. But that is not the same thing as saying that our works don't matter. True conversion, true salvation will produce true spirituality. And what I mean by spirituality is that if we are truly saved, truly new creations in Christ, we will be different. I mean manifestly different, not just different on the inside. We will walk differently. We will speak differently. We will prioritize differently, and we will desire differently. I was... uh, reading in Matthew the other day, and I I come across this parable that I'm sure you're all familiar with, and it just sort of a light went on where Jesus was saying, uh, the kingdom of God, how shall I explain the kingdom of God to you? It's like a man who's walking through a field, and he discovers a treasure. And when he discovers it, he, he covers it up, and he goes home, and in his joy, sells everything that he has and goes and buys that field. What's he saying there? That if we really understand, number one, let me say this. The kingdom of God, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, and, and the other phrase is kingdom of heaven, those two things mean the same thing. But what they don't mean is heaven after we die. That's included. That's, that's what I would call the consummation of the kingdom. But the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is living and walking and breathing and serving in his lordship under his kingdom, his kingness. Now, and if our perception of that, I'm living under the kingdom, 
is, look, I know he's God, and I know I have to live that way, and that means it's going to be hard, and it's going to be unpleasant, but at least there's heaven after I die. Then we really don't have a good picture of the kingdom of heaven, because Jesus says, if you really see the kingdom of heaven for what it is, it's like you immediately, in your joy, are willing to forego everything else in order to get that. It's like if, if, if you tally up everything you own, and even if it's worth a million dollars, it's just like you're walking through a field and you discovered a treasure that's worth a hundred billion dollars. You wouldn't hesitate to sell everything you had to get your hand on the patch of ground that contains that treasure because it is so much better than what you have. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's good. It's pleasant. Is it ever hard? You better believe it is. In the consummation of the kingdom, the struggles are gone. The presence of sin is gone. But while, even while we live in this sin-sick world, we can walk victorious and enjoy the pleasure that comes from serving and living and being related to the king of the universe. All right? So these desires and our priorities, all these changes, they take place organically because of the relationship we have with the one who changed us. It's not like, well, Jesus saved me, and in order to get this salvation, I need to stop uh, fornicating, I need to stop uh, adulterating, I need to stop stealing and murdering and, and, and all the backbiting, deceit, dissensions, all these other things, right? It's allowing him to truly work a change in us. And that brings me to the issue of life. This is not, and don't you dare think it is, mainly a political issue. It is true that the pro-life position is associated closely with the Republican Party. But I looked at their platform. I, I got on the uh, GOP website where they list the, the planks of their platform. And unless I missed it, there's nothing specifically that says that they are against abortion. They are, there's a lot in there about family values and, and, and uh, how that's connected with the health of a nation. But there's nothing explicitly that says that. And even if it did, you know that there are opportunists on both sides of the aisle. There are Republicans who will vote a certain way, but in their heart of hearts, they don't care one way or the other about abortion. There are Democrats who in their heart of hearts are pro-life, but will not vote that way because of party loyalty. There was a guy, I don't even, I've, I've gone back and forth on whether I should name him. I might as well because it's history at this point. But Al Gore, I remember Al Gore back in the day when he was Senator Al Gore had a 100% pro-life voting record in the Senate. Did you know that? He, he was a respectable guy. I liked Al Gore. Uh, I liked Tipper Gore. They were family values. And he was a big-time pro-life guy until guess when? Until he got offered the second spot on the national ticket. And then party politics dictated that he become pro-choice, and he did overnight. Now tell me he had a true change of heart. This is selling out, and it happens all the time. And it ain't just Democrats. Republicans do it too. Don't kid yourself. But for us as believers, this needs to be a non-negotiable. All right? I had a friend, I've told you this story before, good friend of mine, deeply committed believer and a scholar. Uh, but uh, this is back in, the, back in the day. He and his wife were searching for a new church because the church they were attending had adopted what he considered uh, a, a radically seeker-sensitive model where, which essentially said there will be no manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. 
And this wasn't a church where there was a ton of that happening anyway, but he thought to come out and, and, and say this is our policy was going too far. So he and his wife visited a couple of other churches, and they, they found one they thought they liked. They attended it and thought, wow, this is, these seem like the, the, the prayers are real prayers. The worship is real worship. The communion was sweet, and the, and the teaching was good. So they thought, let's come back and check it out again. And so they did. And the next week, or maybe the third week, they're sitting there listening. And the pastor, the teacher uh, that day was saying, you know, we have to, we have to focus on our, uh, the things that unite us. We need to be united on the important things. It's okay for us to disagree about how often we take communion. It's okay to disagree about certain methods of baptism. It's okay if we disagree about whether abortion is right or wrong. And as soon as he said that, my friend looked at his wife and says, it is? No, it's not. And they were gone. And I, and I, and I admire that decision. And I say this not just about uh, preachers, but I say it about politicians. You can call it a litmus test if you want, but if you can't get the life issue right, I can't trust you to be thinking straight about anything else. You know, we get excited about the possibility of overturning Roe versus Wade. I like the direction the Supreme Court is going, but you have to understand the first step that'll happen after uh, Roe versus Wade is overturned is it'll just be mad, it'll just be kicked back to the states. And look at what just happened in New York. At the end of the day, it's now legal to abort a baby right up until the moment it's supposed to be born. So even though this isn't a primarily, a primarily a political issue, we have to remain politically engaged. All right? Still have to pay attention to these things. Still vote. Meanwhile, meanwhile, one of the more popular accusations that the pro-choice crowd level at us is, you're not pro-life, you're just pro-birth. You don't care about the mother. You don't care about that baby after it's born. The only thing you care about is stopping abortion. And when people say that, do you know what I do? I say, let me tell you <laughs> about living alternatives. Let me tell you about Mer- Mercy's Refuge. Let me tell you about adoptive parents. Let me tell you about me. I shared this uh, at a, uh, Beth and I have been privileged to speak at a couple of, uh, well, several uh, banquets over the years and tell our story. And I, I shared the story. I was, it was a, I think it was a WLS. I, I used to listen to a lot of talk radio and uh, the afternoon uh, talk show hosts were talking about this issue. And, uh, and so I, I called in to tell the story briefly about, uh, about Riley, about how, you know, one of the reasons we feel so strongly about this is you know, Riley's life was saved through the ministry of, of uh, Pregnancy Resource Center. His, most of you know that story. His birth mother uh, had planned to adopt him, or, or to, to abort him, until she got robbed of her, got mugged from the money she was going to use to spend on it, and went, went to uh, Pregnancy Resource Center looking for options. And we wound up adopting Riley. And he said, well, that's, a, he said, I got to admit, he says, that's, that's like, that's, uh, that's what I like to hear, people putting their money where their mouth is. It's not you just saying a woman can't have an abortion. You're willing to step in. But he said, but let me ask you, he says, are you white? I said, yeah, I am. He says, are you aware of the number of uh, non-white children that are, that are being put up for adoption? Would you be willing to adopt a person of color? I said, let me tell you about my daughter. 
And he just said, props to you, man. You're putting your money where your mouth is. So, <laughs> I just have to really quick share one line that Beth used in, uh, in one of the speeches she gave was, uh, we are so thankful for the ministry of Pregnancy Resource Center, but sometimes I wonder if we can sue you. <laughs> they are a blessing. Both my kids are a blessing, to us anyway. So I look at the ministry of Pregnancy Resource Center, I look at Mercy's Refuge, I look at all the people who serve there and have served so faithfully over the years and the people who've been ministered to over the years, and what I see is love, and that, folks, should be our defining characteristic. Even in the midst of these ugly issues, it's got to be love. Love first for God, second for the brethren, and finally for the world. And I really do rank them that way. I think that's scriptural. Our first love and loyalty is to God himself. Our second love and loyalty is to this, the church family, the believers. And finally, we love the world, all right? But by loving the world, I mean we love the people in the world. It can't, it, we, it simply can't look like embracing everything the world holds valuable, everything the world believes. Jesus did not come to put his arm around the sinner and say, no matter what you're doing, no matter how you choose to live, you just be you. You're okay. That's not what Jesus did, is it? Jesus preached the law, didn't he? You read his sermons? He was preaching. He was a man preaching under the law. And in his preaching, he showed us once and for all that none of us really keep it. And he showed us the price that had to be paid for that. And then you know what he did? He paid it. We have to understand that. We are so, we are, uh, I've said this before too, I do a lot of name dropping today, uh, but, but uh, one of the criticisms of Joel Osteen uh, over the years is, well, he's not, he doesn't take a hard line on this, he doesn't preach uh, enough about sin, he doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't go too deep. You know, I have no idea how things work at Lakewood, but I can just about guarantee you, you can go as deep at Lakewood as you want to go that if you're watching Joel on TV, you're getting the tip of the iceberg about what that church does ministry-wise. All right? I can't say that with absolute authority because I haven't been there. As far as Joel's preaching, though, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I think he fills a real need when you consider how many people out there are laboring under the illusion that God hates them, are laboring under the illusion that God is mad at them. He says better than anybody else that God loves you. He does. He loves every lost soul in this world. But we can fall so deeply into that where we really do think, you can't judge me for anything because God loves me just the way I am. And if God doesn't judge me, you can't judge me. Well, God does judge you. And he has judged you guilty. He's judged me guilty. God's love doesn't look like you're not perfect, but nobody's perfect. And I love everybody just the same. So you know what? Forget it. I'm not, I'm not going to hold this against you. Hey, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He can't do that. Because God, by his, is God love by nature? Yes. Is he merciful by nature? Yes. You know what else he is? By nature, by definition, he is just. And he is holy. And his justice and holiness demands that your sin be paid for. That's scary. That's bad news. 
the good news is that even though it needs to be paid for, and even though you can't pay it, he did. He does. That's what the cross was all about. If it was just a matter of, I'm just going to write this whole thing off, there would be no cross. There would be no need for the cross. Jesus' preaching was the culmination of hundreds of years of prophetic teaching that you are lost. You have broken the law in every sense. And you can't get back to God on your own. The price has got to be paid. And the price is death. But because I love you, can't let you off the hook. I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to put it on Jesus. He will die in your place. Back to 2 Corinthians and then we'll come back to that. Paul wraps up this letter by saying, look, if you want to be hard-headed and continue in sin, and if you are only going to respond to these apostles who are harsh with you, then when I come, I'll show you what harsh looks like. You haven't seen harsh yet. Nobody has the right to be as harsh with you as I do, just like nobody has a right to discipline children like their parents do. We were watching, uh, what's that circus movie? Huh? Greatest Showman the other day. And Rainy just gets twisted in this scene. And I do too. It's hard to watch. In the early, early uh, moments of the film when, when uh, Barnum's a little boy and he's there with his dad and he's kind of flirting with that girl as she's having her breakfast. And then uh, she gets in trouble. And so Barnum, being the young gentleman, says, it's my fault, sir. I was making her laugh. And the father says, thank you for your honesty. Whap! And then slaps the kid in front of his father. It's hard to watch this kid being slapped, but it is so offensive as a father to watch another man slap your kid. You know, it's it's such a hard thing to see. But Paul's saying, look, I'm your daddy. I'm your spiritual daddy. And if harshness is what you respond to, you know, you love it in these other guys. You're criticizing me for being all weak. I'll come and be strong in your presence if you continue to persist in sin. And this, he says, this is really what's eaten him. He says, after everything you've been taught, after everything I poured into you during my time with you, and why are you persisting in this stuff? Why do I have this gnawing sense in my belly that when I come, I'm going to find you still in the stuff that God redeemed you from? And if I do, you're going to see a side of me that you've only seen in letters so far. I'll come with a rod. But what I really want... This is how he's saying in the close. You read it. Go read the end of, uh, go read chapter 13. What I really want is for you guys to recognize this stuff on your own. I want you to allow the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to drive you to repentance. I want you to respond and lean on God's kindness and the assurance that he will forgive. He will restore. And then when I come, our visit will be pleasant. Our visit will be a celebration, a reunion. Let's read these closing verses. Praise and worship team, you could be making your way up here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, after all this hard stuff, he says this. Finally, brethren, verse 11, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
I love that back in verse 11 when he says, become complete. Do you know what I think he's saying? Grow up. Farewell. Grow up. Start living in each other's, in community with one another as mature believers. There is something about that that always makes me think of little children. We don't expect a lot in terms of physical strength, grace, and ability from a child who's just learning to walk. I mean, it's, it's funny. You know, it's like, hey, a human being is a human being. We, 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 we don't grade on the curve, right? Well, then why do we clap? I remember, I still remember vividly the first time Riley walked across the floor. We were in Indiana when it happened, and we made a stop out at mom and dad so that we could say, look what Riley can do. Yay! And it was a great thing. Now, if he comes walking across the floor like this, I say, what's wrong with you, boy? Why? Because I have higher expectations now. You should have progressed beyond this. And Riley's pretty graceful, believe it or not. Here's the more common sound at our house. You hear down at the other end of the house or on the stairs, you hear this, and then Rainy's voice saying, I'm okay. <laughs> Become complete. You can't just say, well, I got born again. That's the main thing, and everything else is just gravy. No, there's an expectation. You should be growing. You should be becoming more mature. We ought, to, we ought to have a right to look at each other and say, wait a second, you've been a Christian 10 years, and this is still an issue with you? Holding each other's feet to the fire. Now, guess what? Even mature, even mature physically mature people, even graceful athletes can still trip and fall every now and then. Happens but it shouldn't be customary. If this continues to happen, we immediately know there's a problem, right? And what do we want to do? We want to deal with it. Same thing spiritually. Same thing spiritually. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.